Welcome to Beyond Politics, broadcast on WKXL and available wherever you get your podcasts, also available wherever you get your videos, as long as that place is YouTube. In November of 2019, the two top reporters covering the first impeachment of then-President Donald Trump for The Washington Post got together over a bottle of water and decided to write a book about what had really happened. At the time, their editors were peppering them with questions, questions that could spookily also apply to the second Trump impeachment a little over a year later. What do you mean Democrats are only planning a couple weeks worth of hearings? What do you mean investigators wouldn't pursue subpoenas of key firsthand witnesses? How could a president who shattered norms so readily skirt accountability so easily and emerge even stronger? Why had Democrats pulled their punches? Did Republicans really see nothing wrong with Trump's behavior? And most of all, was the outcome of either impeachment as preordained as everyone seemed to think it was. Well, now that book is finally coming out. It's hitting bookshelves tomorrow. It's called Unchecked, the untold story behind Congress's botched impeachments of Donald Trump. And we have those two ace reporters with us today, Rachel Bade and Karun Demersion. Welcome to Beyond Politics. Thanks for having us on. <laughs> it's delightful to have you. I should as a PSA, just mentioned that former Congressman Paul Hodes, my sometimes co-host, had an electrical outage. He was so looking forward to this because it features a lot of his old colleagues and, and friends and it's such a rich and textured story that you tell in the book. He's kicking himself somewhere in the dark. Now, you, you, you write in the preface to your book that after you had agreed over that bottle of water to go ahead and, and work together and, and, and write this, that you vowed internally between the two of you, I'm picturing you like hands in blood oath to get answers to those questions that I just outlined. Did you, are readers going to find the answers to those questions in this book? They're going to find things that are going to challenge their understanding of what happened during those two impeachments, for sure. They're going to find a lot of really, really fascinating, surprising details about what, not, what went on behind the scenes that really can sometimes directly clash with and counter what was being presented in those hearings that we were all watching play out in uh, 2019. And then again, what we were watching play out as Congress was scrambling after January 6th to figure out that impeachment and trial. So I can say with authority that we were surprised at various occasions through reporting the book. And I think we were pretty jaded going into this as congressional reporters go. So I'm sure that people who are reading it are going to find that there are going to be some eye-popping details that may change their understanding and flip the script on what they thought they knew about this really pivotal period in history. Yeah, I would say, I mean, we could go through every one of these questions you just you just read. Why had Democrats pulled punches? Did Republicans really see nothing wrong with Trump? And we've got answers to all of them. But I would just say before we delve into details, I mean, in terms of preconceived notions about impeachment, there really are two. The first one is that the outcome was inevitable, that Republicans were never going to turn on Trump and he was always going to be sort of acquitted twice. And the second one is that Democrats did everything they could to try to run a fair investigation and that Trump was protected by GOP lackeys who were just out there to defend him. Our reporting shows that both of those are wrong. The first one, you know, in terms of inevitability, we show in the book, and we can talk about this more in detail, time and time again, where moderate Republicans really had problems with what they were seeing out of Trump, both in the first and especially in the second impeachment, and some close encounters where they might have voted a different way, but for a ton of procedural process fouls that Democrats had sort of engaged in. And on the second, there is some truth to the narrative, obviously, that Republicans did turn a blind eye to Trump's behavior and very much enabled him. But, you know, 
Democrats, <laughs> we found time and time again, were more motivated by their own political calculations than mm. they were an actual fact finding. And that I think is one of the big sort of surprises that people are going to take away from this is that Democrats pulled punches. They didn't go as far as they could have gone in terms of taking Trump down. And now some of them privately regret it. Well, let's get right into it with the first impeachment. And as I mentioned a moment ago, so many of the themes that come out in the first impeachment, it's it really is eerily kind of prescient and, and presaging what's going to happen in the second impeachment. But you you lay out that from the moment that Congresswoman Rashida Taleb made her intemperate, we're going to impeach the mother remark through the fall of 2019. Nancy Pelosi was trying desperately to hold the line and keep Democrats from impeaching then President Trump. Now, the public story that's set in since then was that after a group of Democratic freshmen authored an op-ed in the Washington Post, where you both worked at the time, on September 23rd, 2019, calling for impeachment, she jumped. But you reveal in the book that actually she was pushed. So what happened? Yeah, I mean, Pelosi, just to start, one of the things that reporters who have covered her for a long time know, but the general public perhaps does not because of the language she uses often, is that she was always petrified of impeachment. She thought it would be a political boomerang that would upend her majority, put her frontliners in these really tough Trump districts in a bad position for re-election, and that it would blow back on the party. And that very much influenced everything she did on all these impeachments. And so Publicly, she would always like to say, no one is above the law. No one is above the law. We're going to investigate Trump. We're going to lead. go where the facts lead us. But behind the scenes in the first part of the book, we detail how she very much worked behind the scenes to try to sort of squish out any campaign to impeach the president going against Jerry Nadler, the chairman of the Judiciary Committee, and other Democratic superstars like Jamie Raskin, who are very much pushing on this. The narrative that is out there right now is, like you said, that she saw the Ukraine allegations that Trump had tried to strong in Ukraine and decided to it was time to impeach, that that was such egregious behavior that they had to move forward. But what we show in this book is that she actually knew about that a while before this, and she was still pushing back on it. Adam Schiff had told her about it. He knew a lot about it before it came public. We show in the book as well. And she was still trying to hold the line. And the thing that really changed her was, again, this op-ed by these frontline Democrats who she knew once they came out and supported impeachment, there was going to be just a jailbreak of a bunch of her members who were going to support impeachment that would make her sort of be left on an island. And so she sort of faced this moment. Is she going to join her caucus and try to lead them? Or is she going to continue on this line to try to kill impeachment? And ultimately, that pressure from outside liberal groups, Democrats in her caucus, they it forced her hand and she did it, but she did it very reluctantly and very half-heartedly. I would just add to that, that it's actually even even a little more contorted than Rachel just laid out, right? Because there were so many people in the Democratic Party the liberal side really knew that what they wanted. They wanted to push for impeachment. Some of them were starting from day one, as you pointed out with that Congresswoman Tlaib anecdote, right? But the ones who are in the middle, the ones, the Democrats representing districts that Trump had won, were trying to feel out the speaker and try to get ahead of the speaker. And Pete Pelosi is then trying to think about, okay, well, what's going to be difficult for them? Because I don't want to put them in a bad situation. They gave me my majority. And so it's this weird sort of tiptoeing dance that happens in the over a, the span of about half a week that leads up to that op-ed, which as we report, 
was not a secret before it came out. The leaders knew what was going on. The, the people who wrote it were actually appealing to Adam Schiff to tell them what Pelosi was thinking so that they knew how they could, should actually time their plans. And, and it, it's this it's a great illustration of how, in, though they were using the language of boldness, and this is what we have to do, and no one is above the law, they were actually very timidly trying to sniff each other out so nobody had to be last and look bad and make sure that they were kind of planning their actions, even among within the, the, the confines of what other Democrats were going to do, which kind of shows you just how overtaken they were by these concerns of what the politics was going to be and, and when to step out, even ahead of another person of their own party who they could have been talking to about all this. Right. You jump, I jump was kind of the the vibe. And it But who's gonna jump first? We don't know. Right, 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 right. <laughs> and it's it, it's it's so interesting that first of all, there was this kind of awkward back and forth going on with Congressman Schiff. That that op-ed wasn't as organic as it seemed. It it, it came across in the press and the reporting at the time, like they had the scales fall from their eyes. Oh my gosh, I can't believe I'm shocked, shocked to discover that there's skullduggery going on. Not, not the case (laughs) at all. And, and second of all, you, you outline even more deeply in the book. And this was really fascinating that as far back as the spring, back in May of 2019, there was a coordinated effort going on, including our very recent guest, who was the second impeachment manager and the current January 6th committee member, Jamie Raskin, and Judiciary Chair Jerry Nadler, my hometown congressman, to force Nancy Pelosi's hand. Could you fill in just a little bit of what that looked like? What what was that coordinated push on Pelosi about? Yeah, Karen, you want to go? No, I was going to say, not a lot of people know about the role that Jamie Raskin played behind the scenes during the first impeachment. Look, he's arguably the smartest constitutional lawyer that there is right now in Congress. He taught constitutional law for, I'm not sure exactly how many years, but a long 25 time. years, so, I think, was what I said in right. our episode. And I might be wrong. <laughs> well, he knows that. his resume better. That's good. So, but he comes to Congress the same year, the same cycle that Trump comes to the White House. And he is knows, he just smells that something is going to go wrong, knowing the character who Trump is, that some, there's, he's going to do something that is going to yield itself to impeachment. So when the Mueller report comes out and it identifies all these potential areas of obstruction of justice, now, Raskin is like, okay, this is go time. This is what we have to do. And so he thinks that everybody's just going to snap into action. And he's got this, su- such an earnest sort of, you know, optimistic view of how the levers of government and power can work, that he assumes that this is going to be a great thing. He'll rally everybody to cause and there they'll go. Not fully kind of anticipating what he's going to find, which is that he's going to find this block from Pelosi that Rachel just explained a moment ago. And the interesting thing is that Nadler comes with the fresh energy of a newer congressman, right? Who like knows that this is what he believes is right, right? Nadler is a chairman who's been dealing with Pelosi for a long time, but still has that spirit that that Raskin is is embodying at that moment. And, and you know, there, there's little anecdotes in the book about how they think about Jamie Raskin as being little Jerry, basically, because he's so like Nadler in the way that he thinks. So Nadler basically tells him, look, you're going to have to do this almost as a coordinated planned mutiny. You're going to have to build up everybody in the party to a theater pitch so such that Pelosi cannot ignore this mm. and will have to actually act on it. But short of that, you're not. it's not going to work. And I can't go to her directly because the worst thing is to challenge her in public. She always smashes people down if that happens. And that is the beginning of this coordinated effort led by Raskin and musketeers. The, they, their aides call them the four musketeers. They're a group of relatively new, experienced con- constitutional lawyer congressmen who build and build and build a coalition until they get to the point where Pelosi can't ignore it. 
And that takes months, but it's a very, very finely tuned campaign. And, and now they're kind of helps them out from the side a little bit by writing, look, at the same time that this is happening politically, the, the Judiciary Committee is trying to appeal for evidence. They're trying to get the redacted information in the Mueller report. They're trying to make a case to the courts that you need to give us more here. And he's finding ways to sneak language into all of these different arguments that Pelosi's lawyer agrees with, but Pelosi doesn't fully pick up on that basically push the envelope such that they're telling the courts they're in an impeachment while Pelosi's telling the country that they're not. Can I ask about that? You, you yeah. include this intriguing nugget did Democrats lie to a federal judge as part of that process? Well, they certainly uh, misled, I would say. Massage. Uh, or <laughs> massage. Okay. So, yeah, this is a great question. So in terms of the, the campaign to push Pelosi, there was this sort of public campaign that Jamie Raskin and Nadler were sort of buttonholing their colleagues, trying to get them to call for impeachment. More Democrats who call for impeachment, the more Pelosi pressure Pelosi feels from the outside but then there's, as Karin just talked about, this legal filing where Nadler was trying to sneak in this language that says we are investigating about whether or not to impeach Trump. Nadler had this argument, basically, that if you're in an impeachment, your subpoenas are going to be upheld at a record time. And the reason he thought this was because back in Nixon's impeachment, that's exactly what happened. So impeachment is sort of the height of congressional oversight, right? It's super important, super serious, and super rare, usually. Not anymore, perhaps. So Nadler wanted Pelosi to start impeachment because Trump was stonewalling all their subpoenas, and they couldn't get any information for their investigations. And so he says, we got to be in impeachment. She says no. And they come up with this carefully worded statement to tell a federal judge they're investigating about whether or not to impeach, which Pelosi's office thought would maybe allow Nadler to test his theory about the courts moving fast, but she was still privately telling her frontliners that they weren't an impeachment at all. So it was very much a two-faced effort where they were trying to have it both ways and clearly were not genuine when it came to that filing. I love (laughs) this whole vision like yeah, like they're they're sort of pre-engaged, but they haven't handed over the ring. It's 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 weird. It's the classic half-pregnant question. I mean, like you have to decide which side of the you do at a certain point. And the problem yeah. is that like, but the pro- the other problem is that look, impeachment is the only form of congressional oversight written into the Constitution. But they don't tell you how to do it. They don't say what the trigger is. Is it a legal filing? Is it the Speaker saying we're impeachment? Is it the House passing a resolution that says we're impeaching? There's no rule that says what it is. And so you saw this fight Rachel just described playing out in real time where they couldn't make up their mind and they were arguing against each other. It completely undermines their own message. Well, speaking of arguing against each other, you you paint a really fascinating picture in the book about the tension over strategy between intelligence chair Adam Schiff and judiciary chair Jerry Nadler. I, I I love Jerry Nadler. I I nearly became his legislative director like 17 years ago. So like I I'm <laughs> I'm a big fan. Like you could have like been this, in the middle of all of this. I, I, I could have. It, it, but I'm I'm glad I'm glad I went the way I did. But anyway, but you know, so there's this tension, and and you lay it out, and you you really kind of like set the scene for this over whether the subsequent impeachment process that they decided to follow once they had gotten pregnant all the way. Is that, is that like, okay to say, you know, whether this impeachment process was truly giving Donald Trump due process and the perception that maybe Trump wasn't being given an adequate opportunity to present his case. And you suggest that, that that perception might've been a factor 
in maybe missing an opportunity to get some gettable Republicans who might have gotten on board with impeachment. All right. I say all of that by way of setting up what I think is, is really the big global question for, for both of you around the first impeachment. This is what I would call the sliding doors question. Not a big fan of the movie, but it's, it's, it's just a great metaphor. There were a series of decisions that you lay out in the book. The Nancy Pelosi's Ukraine-only strategy. We're not dealing with this other stuff. You, you spent a lot of time on that. The, the decision to ha have a year-end deadline to wrap up the process. The decision not to subpoena and fight in court for the testimony of John Bolton and other firsthand witnesses who could have shed light on what was going on in Trump's inner circle. And then all these process decisions about you know whether they were giving Trump a fair trial. After reporting with this book so exhaustively, living with it for three years, did you come away thinking that any of these were a true sliding doors moment where the impeachment outcome would have been different if they had gone another way? I think Karen, you go ahead. Okay. No, okay, look, I, yes, but not, I think, for the reason you're getting at. Mm. I think that at the point of, look, I know we're talking just about the first impeachment right now. I'm personally not entirely convinced that had all those things been completely different, that you would have rallied 17 Republicans or more at that point, excuse me, because they had fewer Democrats in the Senate to actually convict President Trump. I think you would have gotten some Republicans in the House on board with that vote to impeach mm. that you didn't. But I'm not sure that that would have actually cleared the bar. But but where I think it's in the other part of it, and we can discuss this more later after we talk about the details of the impeachments themselves. Remember, impeachments of presidents don't happen very often. Each one sets a really, really important precedent for how the next one is going to go down. What Trump's impeachments did the first time and the second time was they broke this standard of you do subpoena for witnesses. You do have the rules of the road laid out there. You don't one party impeach. You find a way to get somebody from the other party on board so that it doesn't look like a partisan exercise. Even if you started out with the intention, you work until you get to that point. And now because of the way the first impeachment went down, especially, but the way that much of that was repeated in the second as well, you've been left with a moment in which impeachment is more broken as a tool than it had to have been. And that's a sliding door that I think did slide in the wrong direction, whether or not it means that they would have ousted Trump that time. Yeah, I think obviously in the second impeachment, there clearly could have been a different outcome. Yeah. I mean, they yeah. were what they got, they got six, seven, they could have gone, they were not that far away to getting a conviction. And clearly from our reporting and how close McConnell came, if McConnell would have gone the other way, you could have seen a whole bunch of people follow him. But I would just say that in terms of successful or botched impeachments, it's not just about getting that conviction. It's also about turning the public against the president, which is what they did in Nixon's time. Nixon was never impeached. They just did ex an extremely thorough fact finding investigation. It took them a long time, more than a year, hours and hours and months and months of committee hearings and court fights to convince Nixon's supporters who loved him and thought the whole impeachment effort was bogus for a really long time to convince them that Nixon was was a dirty crook, basically. In terms of kind of how the impeachment played out, what what was the experience like from those gettable Republicans? How, how were they sort of perceiving the material in front of them? What was sort of the texture in your reporting of how all of that played out? 
Yeah, so we report that there was a, a group of moderate Republicans in the House who were very much concerned about what they were seeing in terms of the reporting on Trump and what happened with Ukraine and this potential quid pro quo he was trying to get to go after his political adversaries. One good example of this was Jamie Herrera Butler, who is a Washington Republican. She just lost her primary probably because she voted to impeach Trump the second time around. But in the first time around, she we have the story about how she stands up in a private meeting and says, why should I not vote for this? Like, she clearly sees that Trump did something wrong. Why should I not vote for an impeachment inquiry? And we show in the book how Kevin McCarthy and Republican leaders basically steer her up and stir her up on concerns about process fouls. They say, look, you should have had, you should have access to these classified documents or, or secret documents in the skiff, these transcripts from these witnesses who are coming in behind closed doors and telling Adam Schiff, all these things, why don't you go down and read them? And so she says, okay, I'm going to go down and read them. And she's turned away because Schiff has these rules that only the committees that are investigating are allowed to come in, which she was not part of, but that angered her. She felt like she had a right to see this information because she was going to be voting on whether or not to impeach Trump. And so she gets angry about that. She also has a problem with the due process piece of this. Kevin McCarthy sort of explains to her and his staff explains to her that the president doesn't necessarily have a right to have his lawyers come in and cross-examine witnesses, that it's sort of contingent on other factors that Democrats were trying to leverage the White House to do in order to give Trump due process. And so that also turns her against the impeachment. And I also, we show in the book about how Herrera Butler is like, why have no Democrats ever reached out to me? Like I would Mm. have a conversation about the process and what it should look like, but no one, no Democrat ever reaches out to her to say, how do you want to do this? How can we do this so that you would potentially take this seriously? They just don't do it. So she ends up voting against impeachment. Another good example, Francis Rooney, who was this conservative from Florida, who basically had a huge problem, again, with what Trump was doing with Ukraine. And he tells Pelosi on the House floor, we show in our book, I'm willing to impeach the president if you call in firsthand witnesses. He wanted to see someone like John Dean, a person from Trump's inner circle who could say Trump from his mouth, told me this is what he was trying to do in Ukraine. He wanted that firsthand witness. And Pelosi says, no, we're on a timeline. We don't want, we don't have the time to fight in court. And so he, again, he votes against impeachment very reluctantly because he does think this is an impeachable offense, but he feels like it's done. It's being done with such a political lens or a political process that he can't get behind it. Let me just follow up on that to both of you, because one of the things that comes through in everything you just described and really comes through in the book itself, and which is the reason that, I, look, I love when people listen to the podcast or you know watch the video, listen on the radio, whatever, but I want people to actually read the book because what emerges in all the texture that you provide and all of the firsthand reporting, and, and you both put in just a ton of work to really document what was going on, what was in people's minds, what the conversations were, you really get a, a feeling of place in it, is almost a fog of war type atmosphere around both of these impeachments. So much happening so fast, so many personal perceptions and feelings involved. This isn't all kind of like an analytical decision or even a legal decision about, you know, were crimes committed? What does the constitution say? This, this, what comes out as a story that's very much about perceptions and missed signals. And I feel this way because you told me that. I, I guess my broader question out of that is, were there instances that stand out to you of that kind of 
chaos and misunderstanding and cross signals either within the parties or even between party leaders that also kind of changed the way the story unfolded here. Tons. <laughs> Sorry yeah. to jump in like that, but tons. Yeah. I mean, look, <laughs> we've gone through a lot of the details of the first impeachment. They start to become more tragic as you're heading out of the first impeachment and into this trial and then into the second. I mean, look, we, we all watched as Nancy Pelosi after when she was supposed to be taking a victory lap after the first impeachment, basically refused to answer questions about whether she would even send the charges over to the Senate. That was not a coordinated moment. We show the panic of even her aides being like, what is she doing, you know, in the book and how Chuck Schumer is, is, is upset about this, but then tries to find a way to rationalize it. And the whole party's like, what is she doing? We don't get it. That's a moment of chaos that loses them some momentum heading into a trial that was always going to be an uphill climb. These these moments become more tragic as you head into the second impeachment because they are so if but for another hour or if but for another you know, a different human having been in that moment, what might have happened? As Rachel said in the earlier segment, we think that there actually is a chance that if you could have turned Mitch McConnell, you could have turned enough Republicans to actually convict President Trump. Jamie Raskin, we, we go into how Jamie Raskin had two hours, basically, after getting that vote in the Senate to call witnesses before he gave up the ghost and everything that was happening in those two hours, that the full weight of the Democratic Party, Schumer, people speaking for Biden who said they weren't speaking for Biden, basically tried to squish out his whole campaign to actually correct what they hadn't been able to do in the first impeachment, what Democrats had been calling for in the first impeachment, call witnesses, call the people who are the firsthand witnesses who can say what Trump was doing. They had a chance and they dropped that chance because of pressure from the part of Democratic leaders, but fear from the part of the, the one guy we, we illustrate through the, the, from almost day one of the first impeachment, Jamie Raskin, saying, this is right. This is right. We need to do this the right way. Pushing his leaders all the way through the impeachment. Do more than Ukraine. There's other clearer constitutional crimes here. Follow the money. When we're talking about Donald Trump, it'll lead us through the, the emoluments violations all the way through the Ukraine violations. And then he gets this moment where he's got the responsibility to do it. And he folds. And there's these tragic sideline moments too, where we've been talking about Jamie Herrera Butler through the first impeachment. We all know that she was the person that came forward to say, I heard this from Kevin McCarthy about the conversation that he had with Trump on January 6th, the one in which Kevin McCarthy tried to tell Trump when he, to call off the rioters. And they, he said, Kevin, I think they like me more than you do. You know, Herrera Butler, they wanted her to come forward to be the first GOP witness to make the dominoes fall. And so they reach out to her. She's on a different coast. It's a long weekend. She gets the phone, the message when she wakes up the next day, turns on the TV, can see that there is a huge vote happening on the floor, that they're going to call witnesses. What's going on? Needs a minute to figure out how to go up against the whole party. So she calls Doug Letter, who is the House counsel, Pelosi's handpicked lawyer for the whole chamber. He says, I can't advise you. I'm sorry. And never passes on the message to the impeachers, to Draskin's team, that wow. she's actually ready. There's another moment where she's just scrambling, trying to figure out she needs a lawyer. I mean, like, look, a lot of these lawmakers are lawyers themselves. But if you're going to go up against the entire GOP, potentially, you want to just kind of talk to somebody for a second. And it's 7 a.m. California. So she's in California at that point, even though she's from Washington State, but she's on the West Coast. And so she's just trying on a Saturday trying to get all that stuff done. And then, whoops, it's all gone two hours later. 
had they just taken a little bit more time, had they just had a little bit more patience or confidence in themselves, how different could this have been? But everybody through the first impeachment and the second impeachment, as much as they were saying, we're going to fight the good fight or fight the Trump fight or whatever you want to call it on other sides, it's like nobody had full confidence in their ability to do it. And so they just, they said they were going to change the system, but they approached it with the mindset of, I can't. And so that caused a lot of people to give up. It caused messages not to be delivered. It's like a bad romance novel in some ways. You know, if you actually get into the personal failings <laughs> of individuals with potentially good intentions, but just the mistakes that they made for, so that are just so human. They aren't systematic. They aren't about impeachment. They're just about people screwing up. But the implications are enormous. And especially because, like I was saying before, it's so seldom we have these presidential impeachments. The two Trump impeachments are now half, and they're the modern recent half of all the presidential impeachments that have ever been completed to fruition in the history of this nation, right? They are one half of the modern ones that were ever started. Like they matter. Even if you say Trump was an aberration or this is different or we'll do it different next time, it matters. And it matters that the precedent that was set was set not with the intention of doing it, but because humans are frail and they are flawed. And we show how that happens over and over and over again. And what I was saying before, tragic ways. Mm-hmm. It really is amazing. And it just reminds me, it was required reading at the Kennedy School where I went to grad school. It was required reading to read Essence of Decision, which is a sort of a poli-sci classic about the Cuban Missile Crisis. And the the lesson of it is how, exactly what you just said, Karen. It's it's how much human frailty comes to these consequential world history shaking events and how small perceptions, changes, chaos, you know, it's a Saturday morning and I'm on the left coast. You know, how do I, how do I navigate this, this legal question, all kinds of small decisions like this. And we tend to think of all of these figures as political masterminds sitting atop a 3d chessboard and planning every move. It's not like that at all. And anyway, it's just, it's a, it's an amazing bit of texture that, that comes through in the book. And and another piece that's kind of in that vein that I really want to focus on is you kind of take us inside the scene on the night of January 6th itself, literally in the smoking ruins of the Capitol. And in that moment, I thought, and I think the perception that I had gotten as a close follower of politics is they're all just, they're pissed. All, all the congressional leaders, all the members of Congress, they're they're like, let's go, let's get this guy right now. But that's not exactly what happened. And your reporting shows it. And in fact, you show that Democratic leaders, including the Biden White House, were very resistant to pursuing another impeachment on the spot. And they really kind of stiff-armed efforts from Democrats, even in the subsequent few weeks, to try to pursue the impeachment. And very specifically, they held off Jamie Raskin from trying to get testimony from Secret Service agents, staff who had witnessed what had actually happened, which given what we found out now through the January 6th hearings is sort of amazing and mind-boggling. I've just thrown a lot of stuff out there, but could you just tell us more about about all of your reporting on that? It's just, it's an amazing section of the book. Yeah. I mean, just to sort of 
start where you ended in terms of the January 6th committee. Karin and I, we've been watching it. We've been so fascinated by how Democrats have done such a fantastic job, or the committee has done a fantastic job chasing down every lead possible, subpoenaing people from Trump's inner circle, going to court to fight for those summons if these people ignore them. It is exactly the opposite strategy that they've taken from these two impeachments. And that's tragic, again, because there was a moment where Trump was extremely vulnerable after January 6th. And you have to wonder what would have happened if Raskin would have gone with his gut and called these people in, subpoenaed them, fought for them, and ignored his own party, which was putting pressure on him to move on to sort of save the Biden agenda. I guess we'll never know, but we could have seen a different result. And as for your question about, yes, the Democrats, their their private hesitation about doing a second impeachment, which we think is going to surprise a lot of people, but we have a lot of reporting on that in the book. It actually started the night of January 6th. There was a staffer at Fort McNair where Pelosi and Schumer, McConnell, everybody was, who was actually writing impeachment articles during their hideout. Same thing with a bunch of lawmakers who were hiding in the Capitol. David Cicilline, he was in touch with Jamie Raskin that night. They were working on their own draft. And David Cicilline, who's this progressive Democrat, really good friend of Jamie Raskin's, he approached Steny Hoyer on the floor that night when they got back to continue the Electoral College debate after the Capitol had been cleared and secured. And he gives him this draft article. He says, let's impeach him tonight. And Hoyer and Pelosi say, no, 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 we're not going to do that. And Pelosi's staff sent Cicilline a message saying, basically, forget it. We're not going to do that. Focus your attention elsewhere. And then after that, of course, there's this big uproar and the Democratic Party says, we have to do that. She once again gets pushed into this impeachment when she had been having allies, including Adam Schiff, by the way, privately arguing to other members that they shouldn't do this, that Biden doesn't want it. We should be moving on. Let's not do this. And we have great reporting in the book about how Chuck Schumer also wanted impeachment to be done with very quickly, which is ironic because he was one of the first people to endorse the second impeachment the day after January 6th. And he was facing a primary cha- potential primary challenger. So he's very worried about his left flank. But privately behind the scenes, he was putting pressure on Jamie Raskin's team to short circuit their investigation, that they didn't need to call witnesses, even though Raskin and his team thought they could change Republican minds if they called Republicans forward to testify who knew what Trump was doing that day. And so there's pressure from Raskin or there's pressure from Schumer. The Biden White House refuses to work with them to give them help them get testimony from, as you just said, Secret Service agents who clearly knew what was going on that day because they were with Trump. There was a discussion about trying to get Biden to waive any executive privilege that Trump might try to assert from Mar-a-Lago over testimony of Trump officials. The Biden White House wanted nothing to do with it. So they shut Raskin down. And again, this is just this tragedy in this sort of unreported story about Democrats not going all the way because they have other concerns. And in this case, it was Biden's presidency. But what would have happened if they actually did their homework? Well, never know. There's this recurrent fallacy going on in the minds of a lot of the players throughout, especially the second impeachment, but the first two, that by making decisions to speed forward, compromise the process, what have you, that they can somehow control the political ends as a result. And they keep being proven wrong. You know, going faster, the first impeachment does not put the Democrats in a better place. In fact, 
had the polls pretty much show that if the election had happened right after in, in early February, right after his first acquittal, he would have won. The pandemic hadn't happened yet. It was a couple of weeks away. And he was in a stronger position as Pelosi had feared, right? But also had helped to escalate that situation. And same thing, Republicans thought, oh, well, if we just acquit him, if we just lean on our people who are the moderates and make them toe the line, this will all go. We can control Trump. He's going to be out of office soon. It's not about, we can manage this. Of course they couldn't do it. Same deal with the Democrats. Oh, no, no. If we just if we just push the impeachment away, if we just stop talking about Trump, Biden can have his cabinet and he can have his agenda. And all we'll talk about is how great the Biden agenda is. We're still talking about Donald Trump. And we are just a couple of weeks away from the midterms. It's been almost two years. Clearly, there is a false sense of control here of that they can control various things about the po- political levers. But what they actually could have controlled was the procedural levers that were going to have some durability beyond just the, this particular arrangement of parties being in power of different power centers in Washington. And, and those things that they did control, they've set up to be a really, really live wire for the next time when we're probably looking at a GOP house and a Democratic president. Mm-hmm. Well, the other side of that coin of the picture that you just laid out there of what was going on in the minds of Democratic leaders is what was going on in the behavior of Republicans who have generally been praised by the non-sort of MAGA Trump faction portions of the world, including by me. I'm a Democrat, and I have said that I, I think the continued existence of a republic hinged in no small part on the threads of backbone remaining in, in the vice president. You show, and you're reporting in the book, that there's a much more nuanced story there about both Vice President Pence and the House Republicans who voted for impeachment. What can you share about that? Yeah, the, there's definitely. Karn, do you want to go? No, I was just going to say, I'll, I'll take the Pence one. How about you take the, yeah. the, the yeah. moderate? Look, Mike Pence has made a lot of hay out of how brave he was being on January 6th and how willing he's been to come forward. And yes, he did do some things on January 6th, but he had a moment where he could have let his people come forward to be witnesses in that second impeachment trial, and he got scared. And they shut down and they just mm. stopped being helpful. And so it's very nice that now, you know, much later, again, he's saying, okay, fine, Mark Short can go and testify for the January 6th committee. But again, they had a moment to actually look, granted by the trial, Trump wasn't in office anymore. But when you're talking about an impeachment conviction, that opens you up to have that next vote about whether or not somebody can ever run for office again. That is a very, very durable thing that you can do. Even in this circumstance, if Pence's aides' testimony helps create a situation where not only do they get Trump on the subpoena, but the Department of Justice is willing to all run it all the way down and send Trump to jail, guess what? You can still run for the Oval Office from a jail cell. It's not the same thing as being barred from office at the end of an impeachment conviction. And so it's not quite the bravery that he has been saying has been has been the mantle that he's been holding up for himself. Actually, he chickened out just like everybody, almost everybody else did, with the exception of Jamie Herrera Butler and the immediate aftermath of the, the events of January 6th. Yeah, I mean, we show in the book, we show that Raskin, he was sort of, uh, he had this sort of like top secret effort to, to try to find witnesses who would come forward, Republican witnesses. And Pence was his top target, Pence's aides, specifically those who were with him in the basement when the Capitol was stormed. And we show in the book how they reach out through a number of intermediaries. One of them is Jeff Flake, who is a former senator from Arizona, 
was one of Pence's best friends in Congress, very close, to try to persuade Pence to allow his team to testify. Same thing, they did it, there was a, there's an attorney named Chuck Cooper, who actually was representing John Bolton in the first impeachment. So he was kind of against the Democrats in the first impeachment, but he was their ally in the second. And he offers to be this go-between between the impeachment managers and Pence's team, because he's really good friends with Pence's lawyer. And so he's also making this case as well. And then in the in the last two hours of the trial, right after they called witnesses and Jamie Raskin is trying to get Pence aides to appear or Jamie Herrera Butler, whoever they can get in touch with, the word comes down through Cooper that Pence is not going to allow this to go forward, that if they subpoena him, they're going to challenge it in court and it's going to drag the trial out. And that's what ultimately gets also Jamie Raskin to fold in addition to the pressure from his own party. So yeah, I mean, there, as Karin said, there was a moment he could have done something about it and he didn't. He was too chicken to allow his staff to testify. And in terms of those 10 GOP impeachers in the House, we show how Raskin in that frantic two hours, he was calling a whole bunch of them trying to find out if any of them would testify. Did any of them had any of them heard this story from McCarthy about this call he had with Trump that day? Because if you remember back then, we didn't know a lot about what was going on in the White House and everybody was trying to figure figure out what Trump was doing. And those 10 impeachers, at least some of them, had heard that story from McCarthy and they lied to Jamie Raskin and told wow. him no because they were too afraid to come forward. So again, the limited bravery of some of these Republicans who we've all sort of, or people have hailed as, you know, being brave and heroes. Well, turns out in a key moment, they were too chicken. Oh, sorry, Card. did you, did you want to, okay, no, great. I was all just right. smiling, wincing really at that conclusion. No, it is absolutely amazing. And one of the things I appreciate, I'm editorializing a little bit here, is that I just want to mention that what frequently happens with Capitol Hill reporters is they have to be so cautious about pulling their punches because they're well-sourced and they want to stay well-sourced. And what's really been amazing as excerpts have come out from the book and in the book itself is that you're both very brave and you like, it's just, it's a contrast to the type of behavior you were just describing from the impeachers is that you're not afraid to tell it like it is. And I think all of us are going to benefit from that, that kind of honesty and, and candor. And in the long run, I, look, I've worked for a number of members of Congress. It feels like it feels like you're doing them favors to kind of euphemize around some of the things that have gone on. In the long run, I suspect that it's actually better for them as well to have that kind of, of honesty. All right, Rachel, I don't know if you wanted to jump in on that. I mean, I know I've just I've just called you the the modern Woodward and Bernstein of the impeachments. High praise indeed. But I I, I mean it sincerely. I, I I really think that you both are to it's to your vast credit that you are um so direct about all of your findings. Look, I think it's an open question about whether uh, Pelosi's office is ever going to speak to us again at this point. Look, we we had a lot of cooperation on this. And I will just talk about Pelosi, for instance, for a second. She was one of the characters who very much cooperated with the book. But then when she sort of learned about some of the reporting we had 
that had not been sanctioned to give to us that her had not been cleared through her communications team and found out that we knew about some of this stuff, she shut down and her office mm. sort of cut us off. We would later hear that one of her top aides would go around to lawmakers and Hill sources, Hill aides who they suspected had cooperated with us and told them things, told us things they were perhaps not supposed to and got yelled at by the speaker's office who basically accused them of saying too much. She wasn't the only one. We had staffer Chuck Schumer, who very much were trying to get other sources to change their stories regarding the bullying that was happening of Raskin's staff. At least that's how they felt. They felt like they were being bullied from Schumer's staff to try to sort short circuit that second impeachment. We, we know one of the people was trying to get folks to change their story and to call us and tell us that that was not right. We as reporters, we did our due diligence, we double checked everything with multiple sources, and we gave people the opportunity to deny things in the book if they wanted to. But, you know, if our reporting, if we had multiple sources on something, we very much stuck with it. And, you know, it's going to put us in the doghouse, I'm sure, with some certain leaders in Congress right now. But we're not here to be their friends. We're here to establish a record for history and to tell people why impeachment is going to be totally changed from here on out and why we could potentially see another Donald Trump as president in the future. I mean, people are going to want to know this backstory. Well, and Karen, yeah. you, your background is in intelligence reporting and, and national security reporting. So you very much have to make these kinds of reporting decisions, journalistic decisions all the time in, in, in sort of weighing what's in the public's interest and what's maybe not something that you need to cover. Sure. But remember, we're not covering troop movements here. You know, nobody's going to die as a result of, well, I mean, not directly to die as a result of what, what we expose, right? Or shouldn't. But political death. <laughs> political very. That's right. But no, look, our, our job is to do our jobs. Our jobs is to, I, I don't think we took any pot shots here that were unfair. I think that we did our due diligence, as Rachel said. We gave people an opportunity to respond. We ran those responses. I think we did a, a, a copious amount of fact checking here so that there wouldn't be any surprises. But that didn't mean that we were going to be allowed to be influenced or, or bullied ourselves or wheedled or bribed. I mean, that, that's not our jobs. And I think that Rachel and I are both experienced enough on the Hill and in other environments to that we've been beaten up by various sources who hated what we wrote. We've been put on silent treatment and gotten the cold shoulder. It's, it's okay. We're still kicking. We're still doing our jobs. We're still finding other ways of reporting what people need to know. And this chapter of history hasn't been told. And it's important. I mean, look, there are, there are, there are people dug into the Congress of the Nixon years. Peter Baker wrote the breach about the Congress of the Clinton years. We've had two, this is, look, this is not only the historic impeachments because it's the double impeachment of Trump. It's the only time that Congress did this from scratch. There was no special prosecutor, independent counsel or anything like that that actually handed them a star report or a Jaworski report or anything like that. This really mattered because it mattered in every little piece of the substance. It also mattered because it was so uniquely a Congress story. And the coverage that we were seeing, look, it happened so fast that we couldn't have actually been able to report all of these details. We didn't know all of these details that made up the book. The book spends very little time telling you what you already saw and, and takes you into these things that we didn't know and we didn't see at the time. But we knew there was more there that as you laid out at the beginning of our interview, right? There were questions that we hadn't answered. And we knew that a lot of treatment and even a lot of the more like long form treatment was kind of painting another lovely story, but not really getting into answering those questions. And so 
that has been our driving focus. The more that these characters became like a Shakespearean play, the more it kind of just propelled our like interest in figuring out what happened next, what happened next. And at the end of the day, if we had been able to write, we wrote a long book. If we could, if we had been able to spill absolutely every last thing that was in our notebooks, the book would have been at least 50% longer. And it's not. So we wanted to tell a story that was readable. It's long, but it really is a story that we hope is readable. What well, we, we know is readable. We hope everybody reads about the people and about the ups and downs that led to all this stuff happen. But, you know, it's a lesson for the future and it's a lesson for the immediate future that, that it's, it's a cautionary tale of what went wrong, whether intentionally or unintentionally, that can be exploited in the future. And when we say the future, we mean the very, very, very near future. The GOP has made no, they have not been secretive about the fact that they want to impeach President Biden, they want to impeach members of administration. And there is now a a blueprint of how to do it without having to run into all these pesky procedural hurdles that people in the past have said that you have to cross an impeachment. Maybe not. Maybe that means that we're going to end up with impeachments happening all the time. It does seem like impeachment has been cheapened from being a congressional failsafe to being a a tool to express the heights of political animus with the person in the White House. You know, that's a problem. It's also a problem if you don't have these safeguards of what if someday it works because you've got supermajorities, you just don't like the guy, even though maybe they haven't anything that's that terrible and wrong, high crimes and misdemeanors. What does that really mean? Because we have these precedents of, of the system and how how the structure of it works being somewhat dismantled. I, I was going to ask you, because excerpts have come out, they're really fascinating about Mitch McConnell and his internal. But, you know, it's been covered in other places. And I I I commend that to people. I really wanted to ask about that. But, you know, Karin, what, what you were just saying leads so naturally to, to the thing that I really, really wanted to ask with. And maybe we'll just close on this question to both of you. Is is that issue of the the long term legacy of these two impeachments? Because right now, as we record this, and I hope that this podcast will live on in in the same way that I hope your book will continue to, to live on, and maybe it'll be assigned the Kennedy School in twenty years. We're on the cusp of an election where it's widely expected that Republicans will retake the House, and it's widely expected that if they do, they will move to impeach President Biden. And there's also been reporting from some of your Politico colleagues, Rachel, that Republicans don't really know what for. They're just planning to impeach him because, Karin, as you were just saying, that that's kind of what you do. And so I, I, I want to ask about that, that lingering legacy. You actually write in the book, and I'm quoting here, by laying bare the fundamental weakness of Congress's greater oversight power, Trump's two impeachments shook the foundations of the constitutional order that had governed the nation for more than two centuries, throwing the future balance of government checks and balances into doubt and weakening impeachment as a tool for the future. Is that the lasting legacy of these two impeachments? Yeah, absolutely. That's And that's it's exactly what we get into our epilogue here. I mean, as Karin was just saying, the way these two impeachments played out, there is now a path set forward for any party or any future Congress to sort of short circuit this sort of high bar and high standard that past impeachments have had, whether it's like giving the president due process, whether it's making sure you call in firsthand witnesses and fighting for them in court and trying to convince the other side, not just your own party, but the other side, like doing an actual effort to try to change minds. That didn't happen here. And because of that, you're going to see 
Republicans doing the same thing as soon as next year. I mean, Karin and I write in the book that in the first year of Biden's presidency, there were more impeachment articles filed against him than there were against Trump, which is um, disturbing. Yeah. And, you know, I was just talking to an impeachment expert, Tim Naftali, who's a NYU professor who totally agrees with us on this, by the way. (laughs) And he was saying that he now expects that starting next year, we could see impeachments happen for policy reasons. Like some of those, some of those impeachment articles filed against Biden are about the withdrawal in Afghanistan, which was horrible, right? Terrible. But is that, is that something that the founders would want people to be impeaching over the, the situation on the border or Biden's border policy. There's impeachment articles about that now with Republicans. And if Tali was telling me that the founders actually debated whether or not you should be impeaching a president for policy disagreements, and they agreed, no, no, this is about safeguarding the Republic. And that's not, that's not it. But now due to these sort of lower standards, he's expecting that. And once you start one, once one party does it to the president of another party, it's going to happen all the time. Over and over. And I would just add to that, because since this is running with video, you probably saw me wincing there for a second. No, look, the, the problem is that now, because there's so much of a rabid fervor to impeach and to do the, it, it brings everything else down with it, right? When Rachel was talking about Afghanistan, I was, I covered the Pentagon now, right? There is a legitimate reason to investigate what happened in the Afghanistan pullout, but it's going to get swept up in all of this hyper, hyper politicized environment. And it's going to become that much more difficult to siphon off what is the legitimate strains right here of oversight versus what is just the, the, the juggernaut of pol- political fist fighting that it is going to take take over a lot of the, the the culture and the climate of Washington, especially if we hadn't end up in a situation where the House ends up in GOP control, as we're all expecting that it probably will be, short of some sort of really big surprise. And so it, it's not, look, impeachment, as I think I mentioned before, it's the one oversight tool that actually exists in the Constitution with very few directions of how to use it, but it exists in the Constitution. But it kind of represents, it affects what happens with impeachment, affects what happens with all the rest of oversight too. And so this is really problematic when you've chipped away at how much Congress can do in the impeachment, because if you can't do it in impeachment, where the heck are you going to be able to do it elsewhere in the oversight framework, right? Yeah, when you've got a friendly president helping you out with the Justice Department for something like the special committee to investigate the events of January 6th, different story. But most of the time you're doing oversight, the president's not your friend. The president's not inclined to help you out or even turn the other way and do the solid of not getting in your way. It's much, much more adversarial. And now it's, look, there have been very few presidents in the, over time that have been willing to give back power to Congress. This is a constant battle back and forth, right? And to their credit, the Democrats, who we criticized to great lengths in this book for the mistakes, did recognize that they have systematic problems that they need to fix here so that they don't actually keep going down to the the, the race to the bottom in terms of what their oversight does. But they're running out of time. And while the House has passed some of these reforms to try to shore up the system in the style that they did post-Watergate, which was like the, the exception to actually the trajectory that this is all on, still hasn't happened in the Senate. We're going on two months and change now left in the year and just a couple weeks left in session. If those changes don't happen, there is no more guardrails, really, for to prevent this trend from continuing in that direction, especially because the GOP wants to make Biden look like just as much of an impeached president as Trump is now for the anticipation of potentially another matchup in 2024. And again, that just is another another data point of how politics is king here. 
and the institutional safeguards are not. And just to add one last thing very quickly, let's not also forget about executive power here. Mm -hmm. There is now a precedent for a White House to completely stonewall Congress, all oversight, all impeachments, forget it. I mean, Trump did it. Democrats never fought him down in court over this issue. And because of that, we're going to see future presidents do that too. And that's just eroding checks and balances because now Congress can't do its job against a future White House in terms of investigation. And if you listen to our recent guest, Atlantic author, Jonathan Rauch, he says, look, we might be, it's like, uh, you know, we might be getting that now in 2024. If we have a second Trump term, we may have those abrogations of our norms and laws and checks and balances happening pretty darn soon. It's it's scary stuff, but it's it's a wonderful book. Karen Demersion, Rachel Bate, thank you so much for being on Beyond Politics. The book is Unchecked, the untold story behind Congress's botched impeachments of Donald Trump. We really appreciate you running through it. Thank you for the conversation. Yeah, it was great. 